talk to people and find out all the different ins and outs. Anytime you're making that kind of decision, whether it's a medical specialty or someone deciding if they want to, you know, go to PA school or pursue med tech training or whatever it is, someone deciding if they want to get their pilot's license, talk to people who have done it as many as possible. By the time you talk to five or 10, you're going to have a pretty good sense of what the different opinions are and uh, what the different patterns of thought are. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Within pathology, there are many subspecialties which require the pathologist in training to complete a one-year fellowship. My guest today is Dr. Ian Hageman. Dr. Hageman is the program director of the Gynecologic and Breast Pathology Fellowship at Washington University, and he is also part of the ACGME workgroup that updated the Selective Pathology Fellowship Milestones. Today, we're going to talk about those milestones and the paper that came out of this work. All right, here's Dr. Ian Hageman. Can you tell me kind of like where you grew up and kind of, I guess, where you're from? Yeah, Dennis, sure. So uh, I was uh, born in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, D.C. suburbs. Uh, my, My dad's family is French-American, and what he wanted out of life was always to live in France again. He had lived there when he was growing up, uh, and when I was seven or maybe six, uh, I was told one day at dinner that uh, we were moving to France for an indefinite period. Uh, we lived there for five years. It was great. had lots of cousins. Uh, my grandma, uh, grandmother ended up living there for, for some of that time. And, uh, so I really was able to reconnect with that culture. And then we, we moved back to the States around the time I was going to high school. Uh, so I attended, uh, I was lucky enough to attend a magnet program in the DC area for science and tech that really set me, uh, on my way. Uh, so I have kind of gone back and forth, uh, Virginia, France, uh, and then uh, moved to St. Louis in the year 2000 to go to medical school. And have been here basically ever since. We did leave for three years for my residency, uh, and my respected wife did a fellowship in gynecologic oncology. Uh, we were both in Philadelphia for those three years and then bounced back to St. Louis. So that's where we are now. Okay, okay. Now, going back to France, then, like, what, what part of France was this? Yeah, you know, we lived in, we lived in Paris. We lived in the uh, 15th and 16th uh, arrondissement, which is kind of the districts, kind of on the western edge of the city. Uh, I realize now what an opportunity it was. It's tremendously expensive to live in uh, in that part of a major world city, right in the center of everything. But uh, I would take the metro to school and usually take a, a bus and then uh, take the metro. Uh, just, just last weekend, I was able to reconnect with uh, one of my former classmates who's a uh, neurologist now in Kansas City. You know, we both ended up coming to America for, for further schooling and uh, it was just amazing to reconnect, but uh, certainly fun being able to take myself to the grounds around the Eiffel Tower or to the Louvre on a you know, given day after school, which I did pretty often, stopping at a bakery. All that kind of thing kind of colored my worldview. The one thing it did, it gave me a kind of a disability. I have no understanding of pro sports. Like, it's really... <laughs> something that I just have no ability to appreciate or understand or talk about. Um, I mean, the French are pretty interested in soccer. Somehow I didn't right. really get that bug either. 
so, so then you, you came back to the U.S. from France. You said about the time of high school. Yeah, that's right. So, so then you had an early interest in engineering. Was that around that time that that happened? And, and, and how did that come about for you? Yeah, you know, I got interested in engineering and uh, science in general. Uh, I think because, uh, well, a couple of things. You know, one is, uh, I think, just by temperament, always kind of hard to know what sets people off in the correct direction. Uh, my, my grandfather was kind of a scientist, and he was a, a big early hero to me. I mean, he was, a, he was a physician, actually. He was a dermatologist, but he had a very scientific mindset, and I learned to be interested in kind of data and evidence and uh, want to understand how things work from that. I think what I liked about uh, science and tech was that you get to have tools that you uh, that you learn how to use for a purpose. Now, the tool might be a hammer or it might be a equation or a formula or some kind of approach to solving a problem. And ideally, those tools are adapted to a problem. And it's fun to have the right tool for the job. And actually, I could I could connect that to to what we do in pathology, because sometimes we've got some tools that really help us out, whether it's a bandsaw or you know, maybe a objective of sufficiently high magnification or sufficiently uh, high uh, optical quality to let us see the features that we need to see. Having the right tool, having a problem that you think is important to solve, and then knowing how to apply that tool, that's, that's engineering. As I mentioned, I was lucky enough to attend a science and technology magnet uh, program where that was heavily emphasized, and we had some technology labs that were pretty cool at the time. Had some some neat equipment. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the microelectronics lab there, and got to play with different uh, microcontrollers and digital signal processors and oscilloscopes and that kind of thing. Okay, that sounds really interesting. Did you want to have a career in engineering? And like, how did you eventually switch to medicine then? I thought about having a career in engineering. I think I, I threatened a couple of times to go into engineering. And overall, my family was supportive. My, my grandfather had been, had been a dermatologist. I mean, he was still active at the time. And he was really the family hero. I viewed him as a quite a role model. So I basically was always trying to square my interest in science and tech and engineering and computers with the certainty that I was going to be a physician of some kind. I don't think I ever really had any doubt, even though those things aren't necessarily fully fully aligned. I did have a certain amount of difficulty. I've never really loved having to you know, close the door to commit to one option or another. I'm a little bit hyperactive. I like being able to keep different options open. That's a little bit of how I wound up in the MD-PhD pipeline, actually, because you get to keep both of those doors open. So I think MD-PhD was the perfect pathway for me. And I'll tell you a story. Uh, I actually tell this okay. not not infrequently because it can show the effect that a small event can have on someone's life. Uh, we used to have a kind of an activity period after after school at uh, Thomas Jefferson High School that was uh, dedicated to extracurriculars. And one day, there was a, an alumnus or a graduate of the school who was coming back to give kind of a seminar. And uh, he was an MD-PhD student at, I think, at UVA at the time, you know, kind of close to home. And so he talked about his, his research and what an MD-PhD program was for maybe 45 minutes. That was the first day that I heard that that was even a possibility. And 
from that time forward, I always kind of thought that that's what I might be interested in doing. Caught my attention, and you know, honestly, that seminar changed my life in the sense that I ended up going on to do more or less what that person did. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I thought it would be kind of cool to catch up with him. I, I have no way of remembering what his name was or finding it, but that'd be kind of neat. Uh, he he, he, yeah, yeah, that he, would he role modeled that to me in, at, a, at a critical time, I'd say. Now then, go, so going in then to medical school, to going into the MD-PhD uh, program, did you have like kind of a medical specialty in mind at the time? Let's see. So when I came into the MD-PhD program, I don't think that I was uh, really highly differentiated yet. I, I didn't have a strong idea of what specialty I would go into. Uh, I, I hadn't really studied biology in undergrad. Uh, I had gone to Princeton and studied chemistry and uh, minored in French language uh, and literature and didn't necessarily affiliate myself that strongly with the pre-med mentality. And I took all the requirements, but I didn't want that to be my identity. So I think I had probably spent a little less time thinking about my future specialty than uh, your average applicant. Now that I'm an uh, admissions officer for our medical school, I, I have to say, if someone comes in and tells me that they're sure that they want to go into radiation oncology, I would put money on them not becoming a radiation oncologist, right? The probability of switching is really high. Uh, I, I wanted to be interested in an internal medicine career. There's a lot to like about what those guys do. I ended up having mentoring or, let's say, career guidance pretty unintentionally from a couple of people, some of our professors, uh, some of whom are my colleagues today, and a classmate of mine who was a couple of years ahead of me uh, in uh, in age. He had taken a couple of years off before medical school. Uh, we were in the same lab for grad school, and he was quite sure that he wanted to be a pathologist. And that got me thinking, like, hey, if this is good for Jeff, maybe I should give it a second thought. And uh, so he he did end up becoming a pathologist. He's got his own lab now uh, in St. Jude. He's doing great. And, you know, in the end, I kind of explored a little bit deeper. You've got to talk to people and find out all the different ins and outs anytime you're making that kind of decision, whether it's a medical specialty or someone deciding if they want to, you know, go to PA school or pursue med tech training or whatever it is, someone deciding if they want to get their pilot's license, talk to people who have done it, as many as possible. By the time you talk to five or 10, you're going to have a pretty good sense of what the different opinions are and uh, what the different patterns of thought are. I think that you've got to get along with the culture of the specialty that you choose as a Medical students, uh, we're becoming a little bit attuned to the possible equity implications. Uh, we don't want, it's probably not right to say that orthopedic surgeons are a certain way or radiologists are a certain way because we want different people to be able to fit in. We want to expand the concept of what a surgeon is like or what a radiologist is like, what a dermatologist is like. Nonetheless, culture changes pretty slowly. And so I think that it's going to be a tough road to hoe if you find that you don't get along with the people in a certain field. And I found that the pathologists were people that I could, could talk to and kind of share the mentality. And I can actually connect my interest in pathology to a couple of uh, other things in my life. Uh, you know, for one thing, we've got tools that we use. We've got the microscope. We've got immunostains. We know what they're suited for. And they're, they're very good for some things. And we try to focus on doing the things that those tools are good at. The other thing is that uh, in science, we're always trying to formulate a hypothesis and test it with data 
that we obtain one way or another. And that's kind of what pathology is. We've got a hypothesis. There's a tumor here. All right, what data would we need? Well, we'd want to see a certain type of cells. What could convince us that there's not a tumor here? You know, you got to think about that. How do I know if my hypothesis is supported or not by the data? And we've also got to have a sense of how certain we are. The fiction is that pathologists reach a single correct diagnosis with zero margin of error, but really we use the language of uncertainty a lot. That's actually the hardest part of pathology is knowing not just what you think the diagnosis is, but how how confident should we be and how do we communicate that level of confidence. So that just connects completely up with my interest in science and scientific communication. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I, I understand that. Going into then uh, subspecialties, now you've got a, a few, and I wonder if, did you kind of decide those sort of the same way that you decided on pathology, like from talking to other people, or how did that happen? Yeah, Dennis, that's exactly it. I, so I do breast uh, gynecologic and molecular pathology, and I've got a little bit of a different story for for each one of those. Um, my my okay. wife, I mentioned, is a OBGYN. Uh, she's a gynecologic oncologist, and uh, because she uh-huh. had not done a PhD, she got a couple years ahead of me four years ahead of me uh, academically. So she was doing her residency when I was still in medical school. And OBGYN residency is really immersive and really takes a lot out of the people who are doing it. There's a lot of uh, self-therapy and self-talk that they end up doing uh, and spending a lot of time uh, with their co-residents. So that was that was my social circle for those four years. And I felt like I was learning a lot about gynecologic problems. I realized a couple things. One, these are interesting. Two, there's a lot of variety here, a lot of different organ sites. And three, this is an area where pathology really makes a difference. And it could actually really be helpful for for her, for uh, for my wife, to have kind of in-house access to a pathologist. And this could be my hook as a pathologist to have easy access to a gynecologic oncologist that I can kind of curbside with a question. You know, hey, how... How much is this going to change the person's management if we call it a grade two versus a grade one? Some of that kind of stuff. And so that's really, uh, that's worked out. That's been our approach to work-life balance uh, has been to work in allied fields. I know some people wouldn't find that appealing, but it, it works well for us. Uh, and, you know, we have our own separate research interests and things that we do that are a little bit different so that we have our own our own life in the workplace. Now, breast pathology I didn't necessarily ever expect to do. Uh, I always found it pretty interesting. Uh, I had pretty good training at the University of Pennsylvania at uh, UPenn. We had a a couple of really strong breast pathologists uh, from whom I think I learned a lot. But I didn't necessarily see that as my career interest. And as I was uh, coming through fellowship, uh, it's a little complicated. I came back to Wash U to do a surgical pathology fellowship. So I was I was back at Wash U by the time I was a fellow. Uh, I was coming out of training and taking a faculty position, and our breast pathologist, Dr. Allred, was leaving. And so my uh, division chief came to me and said, Ian, how do you feel about breast pathology? I said, not especially great. And he said, well, we're going to need you to do some. <laughs> and I said, okay, uh, you got to be an organization player, right? If, if your organization needs something from you and you know how to do it, I kind of viewed it as a challenge, and I felt like I wasn't too bad at it. Uh, so I agreed to help out on breast pathology. Well, you know, uh, the more familiar you get with something, uh, the more it starts to feel like the right thing to do. Uh, 
10 years later, I'm still doing breath pathology. And I would say that it's probably my, uh, not my core interest. And everyone needs kind of a primary and a secondary interest in pathology. But uh, I think I've got a, a pretty good sense of what the important clinical issues are and, you know, usually can make some reasonable diagnoses. And so I, I'm happy to keep doing it. I'd be sorry if they said, we don't need you to do breast pathology anymore. And then the molecular pathology angle really just hooked up with uh, having gone to grad school in molecular biology and uh, knowing a lot about the techniques. It's kind of the same techniques that we use for uh, studying nucleic acids in a lab setting and uh, in the clinical lab in molecular pathology. At the time, I was coming through training, kind of the early 2010s decade, you know, a little more than 10 years ago. Molecular pathology was really the future of pathology. It still is, except the future is now. Uh, I would say that there's right. the same energy that we have in 2022 around artificial intelligence and image analysis, digital pathology, uh, with surrounding molecular pathology at the time. So it just kind of made sense to tack a molecular pathology training uh, program onto the surgical pathology year. So mm, that's how okay. I ended up training in surgical pathology and uh, molecular genetic pathology. Okay. And you're, you also are certified in clinical informatics. Uh, can, can you talk about that for, for a minute? Like uh, where did that interest come from? Yeah. So I've been interested in uh, anything related to informatics, uh, computers, data, you know, wrangling data, large amounts of data for as long as I can remember ever since uh, you know, high school, probably uh, probably applies to a lot of people. But I remember, uh, sitting on the school bus and uh this guy william who was always uh, a couple of notches ahead of everyone else said i just made a web page said what are you talking about and he told me about the web uh, which was brand new uh, at the time you know we must have been 15 or something. i can't remember how old we were but uh clinical informatics uh is a relatively new subspecialty and uh, there are relatively few training programs currently. So uh, at the time I went through, there was a bi-experience pathway, and I'd been doing some research that connected to informatics uh, pretty uh, in a pretty committed way, and I'd been involved in bringing up some informatics systems uh, in our institution. Uh, so I just kind of realized one day that I actually met the requirements to sit for the informatics boards. Uh, and it seemed like kind of a ballsy thing to do, you know, walk in and take the test, uh, you know, have Wake up, uh, drink a cup of black coffee, and go take the informatics uh, board certification exam. Uh, so that's what I did. Wow. Okay. Now you you mentioned a little earlier how uh, molecular uh, pathology kind of was supposed is the future of pathology, which is now, and it seems like uh, informatics is is really going to be the future of pathology. That's kind of the next thing, and, and those things are kind of, I think they're sort of related in in a way as well. Yeah. So there's maybe three big bins for clinical informatics or pathology informatics. One of them is the uh, lab information system, kind of information system science. And, of course, we can't do what we do without our lab information systems and uh, interfacing them to uh, you know other clinical information systems that uh, reach the patients a little bit more directly. So there's that. There's the d- database stuff. Uh, there's the image analysis stuff that I think is uh, – you know, really interesting and important. That links to the little bit more uh, plain vanilla digital pathology, uh, scanning scanning slides and shuttling the pictures around so that people can look at them without having the slides in front of them. Uh, and then the artificial intelligence uh, decision support kind of piece of clinical informatics. So those are, I guess I named four 
big islands that are connected by big bridges. But uh, out of those, I think I'm probably most interested in or involved in the image analysis piece. And a lot of it is simple stuff that you could explain to someone in an elevator if you had 30 seconds. You know, we've got to count a bunch of cells that are stained either brown or, or blue, and it's pretty tedious to count them. So we're going to find a way to make it easier to count them. Or there are features that can predict the outcome of this disease that you can't really see with your eye, but they're relatively apparent to a computer algorithm. And so we're going to validate an algorithm that, that does that. That's the kind of thing that I'm interested in. But the progress is slow because we got to make sure that what we're doing isn't just some whiz-bang uh, technology, but is actually going to have an impact on human health, right? The, one of my colleagues says the, the juice has to be worth the squeeze. We're going to go to the trouble of creating all this fancy stuff to It'll take an hour to do something that a pathologist could do in five seconds. That doesn't sound like a good trade-off there. So we got to find the value proposition. And I think ideally things that are tedious for humans but relatively uh, straightforward for computers. You know, we we have uh, systems to uh, circle the the interesting parts of the path test. That's a great use case. Okay. Yeah, I think that's that might be kind of one of the barriers to. You know, adoption of digital pathology has been rather slow, and maybe that's one of the barriers of it is, like you said, making it do something faster than a human pathologist could do it. And also, you know, there's, there's of course, the cost of, of the equipment and things like that, too, that probably is a barrier as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a risk of spending a lot of money for a relatively little return. So you've mm-hmm. got to make sure that you understand the value proposition and, uh, you know, the the amounts of money are, are big and they may potentially dip into the same pool of money that could do something else that you want to do, like providing, uh, you know, providing other lab services. So we got to make sure that uh, we provide equitable access to. So if the technology is all bunched up in uh, big academic medical centers, there's a chance of uh, disparities creeping into the delivery of pathology services across the healthcare ecosystem. And we want to avoid that. And actually, one of the, the best use cases is helping to get digital pathology images to experts who can help with diagnosis uh, in case the, the patient is in a place that doesn't have access to, to experts. It's nice if you put the slides in a FedEx tube and uh, you know send them to an expert, especially if FedEx picks up in your region. What if the truck comes through right. once a week or never? Wouldn't it be nice if you could... Uh, obtain a digital consultation. So we do a little bit of that stuff. We uh, uh, have a system that uh, lets us provide or or perform telepathology services uh, for donor organ biopsies in different parts of the country. So the slides will be prepared remotely in Michigan or California or Georgia or someplace, scanned, and then I can look at them for Missouri. How important do you think this, this type of kind of digital pathology training is in not only in residency, but in fellowship as well. I mean, you know, w- one of your current roles, you're a program director of gynecologic and breast pathology fellowship there at WashU. And now is it, is the digital aspect kind of part of that program? Yeah, you know, that's a great question to ask. Our fellows and residents get exposed to certain areas of digital pathology. We do scan our uh, consultation slides, for example. Uh, and so anytime we're looking back at a slide that came from another lab that was sent to us temporarily and that we sent back to them, you know, very often we're looking at a scanned slide of that. We use uh, 
pulse light imaging for our teaching conferences. So the residents and fellows get used to looking at scan slides in a teaching setting. We, we want them to have a comfort zone and to have a certain familiarity with looking at images on the screen. I'm sort of of the camp that says, look, it's still a, it's still a picture on the screen. I wouldn't get that worked up about the, the exact, you know, size, like the pixel density or the dot pitch or the contrast. When radiology went digital, I think the radiology societies were really concerned about validating the, the screen and the cable that connected the screen to the computer and the cable that connected that computer to the hospital, the whole system. I'm not saying it's not important, you know, that's outside of my outside of my field, but my my experience as a pathologist looking at digital images is that it's still kind of an image on the screen. We need to be a little bit careful of usability issues. If the if that image is let's say slow to scroll around, now there's some psychology that creeps in because I'm disincentivized from looking at the whole slide because it's too slow to scroll around it. Or maybe I'll look at it once instead of twice. So there's a chance that some of those human factors and user interface variables are going to creep into my behavior as a pathologist. So we got to make sure that we know about those and control for them. Okay. I understand. Yeah. Those are all good, good concerns. I, I like that. Okay. All right. So then, like I mentioned, you're, you're the program director of the gynecologic and breast pathology fellowship. How did you, how did this role come up for you? So yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about surgical pathology training at Washington university in St. Louis. This is really the birthplace of surgical pathology fellowship. Uh, and uh, the originator of the whole thing was Dr. Ackerman, our surgical pathology director uh, in, the, in the 50s. At that time, pathology residency was kind of a combination of autopsy and research. And if you did really well, Dr. Ackerman would let you stay on for a surgical pathology year where you would learn the pathology of the living. So fast forward into the 90s, 2000s, uh, people are still doing surgical pathology fellowships. There started to be a little bit of a sense that anatomic pathology was getting too complicated for any one person to know all of the organ systems. And there started to be an interest in subspecialty fellowships. A lot of the departments around the country started to peel off individual pieces. uh, And so you started to see the birth of gastrointestinal pathology fellowships, pulmonary pathology fellowships, you name your organ system. I think WashU was relatively late to start peeling pieces off because of our tradition of general surgical pathology, but combination of uh, market forces and uh, trends in pathology, pathology sign-outs became increasingly subspecialized, which meant that pathology careers became more subspecialized. So it became more common for our graduates to be offered jobs where they were being asked to do one or two specific organ systems. So it made sense to start offering specific selective pathology fellowships. So we, we carved off a GI and liver pathology first, probably in, let's say, 2009 or 2010. We carved off ear, nose, and throat pathology to make a head and neck pathology fellowship uh, in probably 2014. And then we carved off one more slot, two more slots to make a gynecologic and breast pathology fellowship. Just looking at the strengths of our department, that was kind of the next area that we had the most strength. And we've been talking about doing that for years. When I came through as a surgical pathology fellow, uh, the director at the time had said, yeah, we could probably, we could probably create a gynecologic fellowship uh, if you really wanted us to. Kind of never really happened for about 10 years. And then uh, finally all the, the stars lined up. Uh, I was, I was excited to 
or I should say the planets, I guess that's how that expression works. The planets lined up. The planets were aligned. I was interested in doing it. We had institutional support from our department chair. So we put in an application for accreditation and uh, the rest is history. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Ian Hageman. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about a free virtual event that's coming up on November 4th hosted by Dr. Alexander Zuroff, and this is called Bridging the Gap Between Pathology and Computer Science. Dr. Zuroff is the host of the Digital Pathology Podcast, and she also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog. And in fact, she was also a guest on this show, episode 53. This event will feature many prominent speakers in the field of computational pathology. And did I mention it's free? For more information, you can check out the link in the show notes or just head over to the Digital Pathology Place blog, and I will see you there on November 4th. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now, back to Dr. Ian Hageman on the People of Pathology podcast. All these selected pathology fellowships, they have standards, or I guess they're called milestones, just like uh, other fellowships and, and residency does as well. And you were part of uh, a work group that was v- developing kind of an updated, the, the updated milestones, or I think it was called Milestones 2.0 for selective fellowships. Oh, Yeah. Then there was a paper that came out of this. So let's let's talk about the work group first. How did you uh, get involved with that? Yeah. So uh, I think I, I've got to start a little bit further back. I got to rewind the tape a little bit uh, to okay. first talk about uh, formal program requirements in selective or surgical pathology. So these the the term selective pathology basically means. Uh, a subspecialty pathology year that doesn't have its own board exam. And the idea or the the fiction was that the trainee kind of selects the area that they're interested in. And these programs had existed in a pretty informal way uh, until, I want to say 2009 or so. I actually don't remember exactly. The ACGME rolled out a set of common program requirements that really defined training and selective pathology and said, here's what you got to have if you want to be a selective pathology program. And if you were to look at the ACGME website, you could find the program requirements for every every one of the 80 plus specialties and subspecialties. So the program requirements say things like, uh, there's going to be a program director. That person's going to have five years of experience in the field. There's going to be a program coordinator. The trainees are going to be exposed to the following types of cases. You know, if it's uh, if it's cytopathology, they've got to be exposed to X thousands of uh, smears and X thousands of fluids during their fellowship year. If it's a core pathology residency program in anatomic pathology, they're going to need 50 autopsies, now 30, if they can number down, that type of thing. So uh, selective pathology got a set of requirements like that. Also around, uh, let's say, 2009 or so. Uh, ACGME started rolling out what they called the the next accreditation system. They had been using for for many years a a set of six core competencies, as they called them. So uh, patient care, medical knowledge, communication, uh, professionalism, systems-based practice, and practice-based learning. 
And when I was a resident, we were told that we needed to be sure to memorize those because if we ever had a site visit, they might ask, do you know what the six core competencies were? And the idea was that that was a roadmap for what you need to cover in residency. Residency programs and fellowships needed to be sure that they hit all of those areas somehow. Uh, but ACGME, our accrediting body, wasn't going to tell us how to how to do it or what to do specifically, but just make sure that you hit all six of those areas. So the next iteration was to create the idea of milestones. Uh, the idea of milestones, it helps you know where you are on the road. If you're on the road to learning patient care, medical knowledge, systems-based practice, etc., wouldn't it be nice to have some kind of milestones or guideposts to tell you, look, you're doing well. You're where you're supposed to be for someone that's just starting in a training program. Uh, you're, you're at a good point for graduation. Or maybe, hey, you've actually exceeded the expectations for the typical graduating trainee in this specialty. So that's, what, that's the idea of milestones. They're basically a map. Uh, if you were to pull up a set of milestones okay. in pathology or any other field, you'd see that it's kind of a grid. Uh, usually, well, always, uh, divided into five levels, level one through five. Level one is going to list the characteristics of someone that's just starting their training program, and level five is aspirational. Most trainees won't reach level five. Most trainees will graduate at, at or around level four. There's a bunch of interesting features of a milestone-based system. One is that they're not prescriptive. So uh, they're not a checklist. The trainee isn't required to reach level four in order to kind of win the game and get to stop playing. They don't need to get to level four in every area to uh, to graduate from their program. Because we recognize, as a, as a profession, we recognize that people have different strengths and interests. Uh, but milestones can also be a roadmap that helps you know what would be the next step. So if you've reached level two, you want to do better, take a look at the level three milestones and it'll tell you what's next. What, what would be the typical pathway of a, of a typical learner who's trying to advance in this area? Uh, and the ideal trainee in graduate medical education is going to have enough of a learner phenotype, enough skill as an adult learner that they'll be able to create a learning plan to help themselves get to that next step if they want to. So that would bring us to uh, the Milestones 2.0, which is what you asked about. There's a yeah. uh, regular update cycle. You know, ACGME knew that they wanted to update the first round of selective pathology milestones. They had been released uh, originally in 2014, and by the time it was 2020, it was time for a, just a new update or a refresh. Uh, actually, across all the specialties, there was you know, there's an ongoing regular review cycle for the milestones. Uh, you were asking how I got involved in the work group to update the selective pathology milestones. I, I volunteered. You got to keep your eye open for opportunities. And it was basically an open call for volunteers with a, a little form, wrote a couple of essays, uh, sent in my CV. ACGME was trying to put together a group that had the expertise uh, to update these milestones. It represented a wide variety of selective pathology programs because the the truth is there's a lot of diversity, uh, not only within the, the anatomic pathology subspecialties, but there are selective CP fellowships, too, uh, on, the, on the lab medicine side. Uh, actually, selective pathology has three tracks. Track A is general surgical pathology. Track B is organ system specific, so all of the 
individual organ system pathology fellowships. And then track C is focused clinical pathology. Uh, there actually there aren't that many track C programs. Uh, there's been a biomarker development uh, program. There's a transplantation related program, that type of thing. Relatively few. They're all quite different from each other. So ACGME wanted to impanel a group that uh, had the experience and, and diversity to write milestones for hopefully all of the selective pathology programs and not be too focused only on the surgical pathology programs. Uh, so we, we had a couple of in-person meetings. This was before the pandemic to achieve a shared mental model and iron out some of our understanding of how milestones work. Uh, and then it was just a group authoring project that uh, led us to a finished product. It was really interesting for me to see how you uh, not only create a consensus uh, expert opinion like this, but also how you gather buy-in from the public. So there was a survey that was circulated. Uh, public comment period. We received the comments and you know, made some focused updates in response. And uh, uh, then the, the guidelines were promulgated. Uh, I think it was July 1st, 2021, that they came into effect. I may be off by a year at this point. It may have been 2020. So working with this work group, was it, it, it like, did it meet your expectations of what you would be doing? Was there anything that you like was unexpected or was kind of over and above what you expected to be working on, if, if that makes any sense? Well, it was definitely interesting to be in the, in the room where it happens, if you will. Uh, we were, you know, we were working on a document that was going to become the actual milestones that, uh, you know, it looks more or less like the milestones document that you can download from, uh, from the ACGME website, except we, we were editing it. Right. It's kind of like you're in a 747, but you're actually sitting in the cockpit and you're flying it. That's pretty surprising. Yeah. I, I'd say that ACGME was, was very good at running this process. The person who's in charge of the milestones department is named Laura Edgar. I think she was a, I think she has a background in lab medicine, actually. I think she was a med tech before. She has her doctorate in education now, but so she, she was, uh, probably had a profound understanding of pathology, uh, that, made it fun to work with her. Uh, but they, they really have it down to a, to an art. They've got good definitions for all the concepts. They've got principles that make it overall relatively easy to know if you're doing a good job or not. They had staff that were quite skilled in uh, guiding us along the appropriate path while still giving us leeway. I have to say they didn't guide our hand. They maybe held our hand as we created the milestones or updated the existing milestones, but we had, free reign. They were very respectful of our domain knowledge about pathology. Uh, and uh, they were, they were also very good hosts. You know, I don't, I don't do anything without coffee. There's got to be unlimited coffee if I'm going to do this kind of thing. And uh, the hospitality okay. was, was exemplary. They've got a kind of a conference center almost that they built uh, just off of uh, the Chicago river uh, facing, running on Michigan Avenue. There's a, one of those skyscrapers there in Chicago is the ACGME headquarters, uh, right next to the Apple Store. So that's that's where the work happens. A part of the work, then uh, you, uh, you know, the the group kind of reorganized some of the, you know, you mentioned that the core competencies uh, earlier. That, so some of the milestones were were reorganized and combined together. Or I think it says in the paper. Uh, the, the word was they were harmonized. So you've got the patient care, the medical knowledge, and then the 
I think it was called non-patient care, non-medical knowledge milestones. And those were kind of combined together. Can, can you talk about that process a little bit? The name non-PCMK milestones is really awkward. That's probably the worst part about this whole thing. But you're right. There's an effort to harmonize <laughs> okay. those non-PCMK milestones. There's, uh, so there's six core competencies. They haven't really changed. Some of those competencies are very specific to the individual subspecialty that you're talking about. So they're not going to be the same in cytopathology as they are in forensic pathology, as they are in neuropathology, as they are in gynecologic surgical pathology. So, you know, what are the patient patient care skills of a uh, cytopathology fellowship? Well, there's going to be preparing smears. There's going to be doing fine needle aspiration biopsies. We're going to be interpreting gynecologic uh, cytology preparation and so on. All right, that's not at all a part of selective pathology programs. It's just not part of our skill set. Well, how about the professionalism expectations or the the interpersonal uh, communication, team communication aspects of, of selective pathology versus cytopathology? Those are going to be pretty similar, actually. So one of the innovations in the Selective Pathology 2.0 program uh, was to realize that we probably don't need to have very different sets of milestones for uh, for some of those non-patient care, non-medical knowledge domains. Uh, and in fact, if we harmonize the non-PCMK milestones, if we make it so that every pathology program, residency, fellowship, has the same communication milestones, has the same professionalism milestones, has the same systems-based practice milestones and uh, uh, patient-based learning, practice-based learning, I'm sorry. That's going to make it a lot easier to crosswalk a trainee's performance as they move from one program to another. So now if a trainee goes from pathology residency to pathology fellowship to another pathology fellowship, they're staying on the same track with their non-PCMK milestones. So if one of my resident leaves, uh, one of my residents leaves the program, I can tell their fellowship director this person is a three on their communication one or their communication two milestone, and their next program director knows exactly what to expect for their level of skill, and that trainee also knows what to expect. So we're, we're trying to make things as simple as they can be, but probably no, uh, no simpler. Uh, there's sort of a, a funny story I heard. There were something like... Um, 88 different ways that the different specialties uh, describe self-directed learning, like what the goal is of being a self-directed learner uh, across all the medical specialties. Well, we don't need 88 different ones. We need to come up with kind of a shared vocabulary of what we expect of a self-directed learner. So that's the idea of harmonizing the non-PCMK milestones. So our task in the Selective Pathology Milestones Workgroup is really to author and edit the patient care and medical knowledge milestones, and then to confirm that the harmonized non-PCMK milestones were appropriate for selective pathology. You know, one, one aspect of, it was specifically in the, in the patient care milestone that I want to talk about because I'm a pathologist assistant. And so this is important to me, but in that milestone, there's an emphasis on gross incompetency. And I'm curious about that. Like, why was that Why was it important to keep that in there as a requirement? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked about that because that's actually the probably the one one thing that I wanted to make sure I achieved in this process was to make sure that grossing 
uh, gross pathology state in the milestones. I think it's incredibly important. It's a little bit of a value uh-huh. judgment or value statement on my part, but I'm going to, I'm going to make it, I'm going to say, come out and say that gross pathology is, is essential. Uh, sometimes our trainees get the idea that the slides are the real thing. Well, you got to have the right thing on the slides, right? I mean, you know, as a, as a PA and we need to, model the right behavior and the right attitudes to our trainees, we need to tell them we care about grossing. We care about your grossing, and if the PA put the case up, we care what they did too. And it involves skills, and you've got to understand the clinical scenario, so it involves clinical reasoning too. Understand the questions that need to be resolved. you got to understand the anatomy of the specimen, the orientation, the procedure that was done. You've got to understand the distinction between a margin and a natural surface that the surgeon doesn't control got to be able to think three-dimensionally, all kinds of stuff. In the Selective Pathology Milestones 1.0, there was actually only one patient care milestone. They called it, uh, it was basically microscopic and gross combined. So there was okay. only one, you know, a trainee would only get one, uh, one milestone level assigned for their gross microscopic exam. And as a group, we thought that it was going to be too easy with only one milestone to kind of sweep the gross examination uh, under the under the rug, we wanted to be sure that there was a whole separate milestone for that, so that we could let programs document their trainees' level of uh, comfort and skill with gross pathology. Now, there's a corollary, which is that the programs have got to do something that involves grossing, right, in order to be able to assign their trainees to a milestone, in order to assess their selective pathology fellows on gross examination. They need to somehow help the trainees show their skill level. And we're not saying that the trainees have to grow cases, certainly not that they have to do it all year. But if I'm training a fellow in gynecologic pathology, I, I owe it to that person to make sure that they have a good understanding of how to put up GYN cases. Uh, what we do in our program is we have the fellow grows for two weeks on the GYN service and two weeks on the breast service. And I think that's a good balance between between letting them kind of learn the wash you way, uh, letting them demonstrate their skill, letting them see different kinds of cases uh, without necessarily keeping them in the growth room for extensive numbers of hours that might stop them from uh, achieving some of their other goals. There's a lot that has to happen in a pathology fellowship year, and it's just one year. And a lot of the trainees are switching from one lab to another. They're moving institutions. Uh, so they got to pack a lot in. And uh, we recognize that grossing can be time-consuming. Now, if it's too time-consuming, it's a red flag. It tells me the person needs to increase their comfort level uh, because right. uh, you know, a skilled gross pathologist usually doesn't get their feathers ruffled uh, by, by just about any specimen. So as soon as, as soon as I have a trainee who's questioning the value of grossing, that's kind of like a red flag. Okay, I see. So it, it sounds like it's not that they have to be they have to it's more about understanding the grossing process i guess rather than being kind of physically able to to do the grossing themselves although that that should be part of it too right but it's more about just kind of the the understanding of it is that am i interpreting what you're saying correctly you are interpreting it correctly i think there's there's more than one way to skin a cat and i used that phrase one time and someone said how often do we skin cats and is there really more than one way you know there may not be but uh, I, I think that a pathologist should be able to supervise uh, the grossing of a uh, of, of a case that's in their lab. They should also be able to do it themselves. Uh, I think 
we may need to maintain an awareness of the kind of technical capabilities and uh, you know possibly differential abilities of different individuals. I think there's nothing quite like doing it yourself to see the ins and outs of a process. So I'll just give you a story. I never really understood why beer was carbonated. Uh, it just, you know, it was. And then my, my brother sent me a, like a homebrew kit, you know, a five gallon bucket and some hops and malted barley and stuff. Oh, sure. Now I understand really well. I mean, I can tell you exactly why and how the beer gets carbonated. So, you know, the same thing with making puff pastry. I did it once. It was pretty labor intensive. I always wondered what, what the big deal was. And now I understand it really well. So doing it once and, or maybe twice. And that's kind of what, uh, what we want our trainees to do. We want them to do it enough times that they both attain and also can demonstrate their understanding of the complexities of the process. And it's amazing what trainees learn when they get thrown into a, a new lab. You know, I, talk to trainees who uh, fellows who say, oh, I never knew that you could do it that way, or I thought I knew how to do this, but now I see two ways of doing it, or I thought you needed I thought you needed a paddle to do this, or I didn't know you could use that kind of chucks for cutting frozens. You know, we always use the cold freezing spray to, to do this stuff, and you guys don't even have the freezing sprays in the lab. I could go on and on. Right? The more The more of it you do, the more versatile you become. But as I say, I recognize that gross, uh, grossing cases is time-consuming uh, and uh, probably the unique skill of a surgical pathologist. Uh, the thing that no one else can do is looking at the slides, and that's kind of what they what they want to do in their year. So we've got to have an appropriate balance. The other thing that's changed about pathology training is that the trainees are not just a pool of labor, right? I mean, they're being paid pretty, pretty generously to, to do a job. But they're really participants in a training program, in an educational program. So they're not here just to, to gross cases because we need someone to, and they're some of the people who are there to do it. I mean, everything that we do in a training program has to have an educational rationale. And what I've learned about the GME attitude towards uh, almost anything that we assign to our trainees is once they've demonstrated their competency, they get to stop doing it. So that's that's why we don't have our fellows in our program here train, uh, I'm sorry, growth all year long. You know, once they've demonstrated their competency, they get to graduate out of it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So then you were talking about earlier how this is sort of, uh, you want you want this to be kind of transferable from program to program. So if that if a trainee goes to a different program, they have the same competencies. And for that... There was, again, in the paper, there's a part about the, the Milestone Supplemental Guide. And I wonder if this was to sort of help the programs better understand what the milestones are so that they can have the same requirements for, for trainees uh, from, from year to year and from program to program. Is that is that correct? Yeah. No, that's a great question. So uh, the Milestones uh, 2.0. Uh, introduce the idea of the supplemental guide. So every specialty has a supplemental guide. Uh, it's a document, probably 20 pages long, about the same length as the milestone document itself. And it, it's a resource to create a shared mental model is what it is. It helps uh, programs understand the intention of each milestone, uh, the overall intent. It provides examples of each level. 
So if you open up the supplemental guide for selective pathology, you'll see uh, examples of what it would mean to be a level one, two, three, four, or five on each of the milestone uh, subcompetencies. The supplemental guide also suggests assessment tools. Anything that's a milestone has to be accessible in some way. If it if it couldn't be assessed, then how could you possibly assign a training to a level? So we provide uh, ideas of possible assessment tools, uh, also references and kind of pointers to the literature. And then finally, uh, something that probably isn't used very widely called a curriculum mapping tool to help each program pencil in where in their program each of the competencies and subcompetencies is taught so they can help to identify if there are any areas that they're not really covering and they, they can do some focused program development or faculty development to try to teach and assess in those areas. So that's the supplemental guide. You can download it uh, for each of the specialties, not only selective pathology. I think it's helpful to look at. We created that as, as sort of the, the mirror side, the mirror image. It's the other side of the coin of the milestones. Uh, there's no requirement to use the supplemental guide, but I think that it can save a lot of time in uh, clinical competency committees, and it can help programs assign uh, milestones for their, uh, for their trainees. You mentioned something else, Dennis. You mentioned the paper. So I'll just uh, maybe tell you a little bit about that. Uh, okay, yeah. A- yeah. ACGME is actually pretty interested in being scholarly with the milestones uh, and uh, kind of kind of studying uh, their studying their effectiveness and uh, studying the implementation process. They encourage the uh, work groups and users of um, milestone documents to communicate their process to the broader scientific public. Uh, so our, our work group decided to put down on paper uh, some of our thought processes in uh, creating the Selective Pathology Milestones 2.0. And so we verbalized those in a paper that came out in the Archives of Pathology and Lab Medicine uh, basically in July of 2021 at the same time that the milestones came into force. So I hope it's helpful in helping users of the milestones to kind of crosswalk themselves from uh, milestones 1.0 to 2.0 and understand the intent of uh, some of them. I've heard in maybe in uh, settings, you know, maybe not in pathology necessarily, people say, where do these come from and who wrote these things? And do they know anything about about our specialty? And how do they know what to put in here? Uh, So this manuscript is our attempt to show our thought processes and, uh, you know, invite comment potentially. Uh, if, If anyone wanted to, give us feedback uh, that could be incorporated into the milestone 3.0 uh, if I'm lucky enough okay. to be asked to contribute to them of course <laughs> sure all right yeah and I will uh include in the in the show notes for this episode I'll include a link to the paper uh so it, it's a called advancing fellowship training in selective pathology design and implementation of the milestones 2.0 and I'll include that link uh Dr. Hageman before we wrap up is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to mention uh, well, I just want to thank you for doing these podcasts, Dennis. I think it's great to get people talking, and uh, I know that you've had a, a lot of success, and it's well-deserved, uh, but I also know that it's a lot of work to prepare these podcasts. Uh, you, uh, mm. I mentioned that my esteemed wife is the editor of an OBGYN podcast. Uh, it's true, and when I see her working on, uh, on the, uh, you know, editing them and putting them together, uh, I mean, they're a great resource, and uh, yeah. they're good for... They're good for for recruiting, they're also good for morale, and they're good for introspection, helping us think about what it is that we're doing. And uh, so I, I love that you're doing it, and 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, and I know you you were a, a guest on your on your wife's podcast as well. I um, I'll include a link to that as well. That was a good episode. So, uh, I, I I appreciate your time. It was uh, it was this was really interesting to talk about the paper and the work that you'd be doing, uh, Doctor Ian Hageman. Thank you very much. Great big thanks to Dr. Ian Hageman. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. It seems like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, the, the role it just seems like it's going to expand in, in the future and probably the near future at that. And I'd like to know how do we how do we prepare for this? Like, I mean, a pathologist, of course, but also, you know, n- non-pathologists like me, how do we prepare for this change? Mm-hmm. Well, the best preparation will be to educate ourselves. If we educate ourselves, we will be able to engage in the development. And you mentioned this with other products, with the lab information systems, where you see that they are not really being done with the involvement of the end users. So to prepare for AI and to actually make AI better for us later, we should get involved. And to get involved, we need to have a certain level of knowledge so that we can provide value. We already talked about it in the context of the course. But basically, to educate ourselves. And educate ourselves in the process and also, like I mentioned about image analysis, about reviewing the quality of what those AI applications or AI solutions provide. And I'm mostly talking in the context of image analysis, but this applies to any tool. To hear more from Dr. Alexander Zhirov as we discuss digital pathology and artificial intelligence, check out episode 53. All right, so this was really interesting to get a kind of a behind-the-scenes look into what goes into making the standards for pathology fellowships. And even though I'm not a pathologist myself, I think this is going to be useful for me because I work with residents and I work with fellows. So it's interesting to see if I can find ways that maybe I can help them. It's also nice to know that these milestones do get updated periodically by people actually working in the field. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.